0: Recorded live. Hi, my name is Sean Wright, and we are here for another episode of the Financial and Legal Podcast. Today, we are joined by Attorney Chad Van Horn from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Chad, can you hear me?
1: I can hear you just fine, Sean.
0: Okay, great. Uh, Now, you are originally a Pittsburgher. Uh,
1: Where are you from in... Born and raised in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, went to Robert Morris University for my undergrad, and and uh, came down here for the fairer weather. Um, I know that uh, you're in the heart of winter right now, so we're we're enjoying our 65 and sunny, while while you guys might be getting a little snow up there.
0: Yeah, we did we did get a couple inches a few days ago, and it was down uh, with the wind chill below zero uh, this past weekend. So don't rub it in too much. Um, <laughs> so. Uh, any of it we um, you and I met each other a few years back, uh, not in Pittsburgh and not in Florida, but rather at a conference for attorneys who were looking to learn more about student loan debts, uh, how to help clients who have student loan problems and um, and you 've been doing this kind of work for a couple of years now, in addition to your regular practice. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, your practice, your law practice now? And the types of clients you uh, you assist.
1: Absolutely, and and because the student loan debt keeps growing, this is becoming more and more of my regular practice. Uh, I started as a bankruptcy practitioner, and I still uh, do file bankruptcies. I'm a certified uh, business bankruptcy practitioner, meaning I file uh, Chapter 11s, and I do also do consumer Chapter 7s and 13s. Um, But People have been struggling with student loans, as you're very familiar, and, and unfortunately it's only getting worse, where it seems like uh, these degrees are becoming much more expensive, um, but they're uh, key to not necessarily allowing you to get the jobs necessary to pay for these student loans. So we help people for, from simple issues, uh, whether they're private uh, federal student loans to consolidations, to more complex uh, dischargeability issues. Uh, whether they're qualified student loans under the IRS code and uh, different issues that um, any issues that a student might run into.
0: Now, one of the big questions that I get, you know, people call uh, about their student loan problems or I might, you know, run into someone, um, you know, an existing client or just a, a, a new person who, you know, they've got student loan debts and they have no idea what type of loans they have. Do you see this? I, yeah, I see that every day.
1: And uh, the, the most common mistake is everybody says, well, I have Navient, so that means I have private student loans. And as you and I know, Navient is a servicer for Sally Mae, which is a private bank now, and Navient is also a servicer for the federal government, um, the Department of Education. So the the, the key that I've told people, when I, especially when I'm doing phone consultation, is like, look for that little seal up top from the Department of Education. Um, because even some of the servicers, they sound like they're federal federal loans and some of the debt collectors might sound like they, they deal with the federal government. government. But uh, that's, that's usually the hardest starting point for me is if, if somebody doesn't know whether they have private or federal loans because you have very different options depending on what type of loans you have.
0: Now, do you uh, send people with their you know, FAFSA ID number to the um, uh, National Student Loan Database website?
1: Yes, I. uh, That's always a starting point for us. I have them pull what's called their NSLDS report. That's NSLDS.ed.gov. I always want them to do that, and I also uh, have them pull a credit report so that we can review the credit report. We can review the NSLDS report to see exactly what we're dealing with as far as loans.
0: Now, for the listeners out there, um, you know, there's roughly about a trillion four hundred. Billion um, uh, dollars—a <laughs> big number. <laughs> it, yeah, it's really a big number of student loans, and and so and this is increasing uh, daily. And so, uh, the t- the best statistic I saw was that federal student loans um, take up about ninety-three percent of that pie. Um, I didn't—I don't wow. have my calculator on me, but uh, even if you think that well, private loans only. Encompass about seven percent of all student loans out there. It's still a lot of money. We're talking about billions of dollars of private loans. So, um, do you do you say? Would you say you, um, in terms of the the clients that you have, do you get more folks with federal student loan problems or with uh, private student loan problems? Well,
1: when when you discuss problems, it's usually the private student loans that are causing the bigger issues so that i would i have a couple different categories of clients i have some clients that that really have no idea what what the student loans are whether they're private federal they may have gone to one of these for-profit schools that have recently come under fire and some have gotten shut down um but with the federal student loans the people that don't know what's going on with them they usually come in whenever there something happens and that usually something is an offset of their tax refund uh, meaning that the Department of Education just takes the takes the tax refund directly from uh, the Department of Treasury, or they get that 15% wage garnishment that goes into effect, and and then they then they usually have, call an attorney and say, hey, how do I make this stop? With the private student loans, it, it's very different. People come in and they're trying to work something out, but they just don't have the programs that are available under the federal, on, under the Department of Education scheme that we have right now, as far as the income-based repayment or extended payment plans. Uh, the independent creditors do have programs, but usually they put you in default regardless of what program that you get into if you cannot make the contractual, uh, contractually obligated payment.
0: So those are the private lenders that don't have the income-based programs, right?
1: That's correct. I'm seeing some more private lenders try to model things off of the income-based repayment in the, in the right circumstance. But the private lenders right now, uh, I call it, they, they have uh, this black hole plan where they say, all right, well, just send in whatever money you can, and it goes into this black hole, and interest keeps accruing. The statute of limitations obviously doesn't accrue, so that debt keeps resetting. And it, it, they can still file a lawsuit at any time because you are technically, or you are just in default of the contractual agreement. And, and usually it's people who are in default because, just can't make payments they don't have the income to make the payments
0: because even even uh the, some of these private loans can be pretty considerable you know we're talking you know, sometimes high double fi- uh high five figures or even six figure loan amounts is that right
1: yes i i i actually recently uh settled a case with allied interstate and i and i, I don't like to put this information out there for for my advertising purposes because then everybody will expect this result but I had a client that had a two hundred and one thousand dollar private loan balance, and unfortunately, it was one of those for-profit schools. Uh, she had a history of not really uh, being able to make money. There were some other issues with the um, with the payments, um, with the documentation behind this loan. And for those that don't know, Allied Interstate is a collection company for Navient. They work with Navient, on and we actually lo- were able on to settle lobes? that.
0: Do do they just work on
1: private private loans? Okay, gotcha. Yep, yep, on private, and uh, we were able to settle that for a a lump sum of twenty-one thousand, so a ten percent settlement. Yeah, and uh, it it, luckily a family member stepped in, uh, got the got the twenty-one thousand, but we were able to get rid of one hundred and eighty thousand dollars worth of debt. Obviously, uh, that is a rare, rare circumstance. There are deals to be had, especially if uh, if, if the uh, if the debtor or if the student can prove that it's an unlikely um, potential that they're going to pay back the the loan. Then usually the uh, lender is willing to try to work something out.
0: So you, your your client in that case probably had been suffer had suffered a financial hardship of some kind, right?
1: Yes, it was a mixture of there certainly was a financial hardship and and there actually were I believe that there were some medical issues in, involved as well. And uh also this lender didn't have all the documents in place that you might need to bring a lawsuit. Uh yes. Uh, so I think so I think that mixture um and and once again for for your listeners, I don't I don't want everybody running to you and saying, "Hey, I I have 100,000. I'll settle it for 10,000 right now." Um, we all would, and if, if, if we had that magic power, uh, we, you and I both would be retired doing podcasts all day.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that's true. Um, all right, now, you talked about um, statutes of limitation, and um, uh, can you tell, just to define what a statute of limitation is um, and why this is important in the student loan context?
1: Absolutely, and generally speaking, and it's a uh, state-specific, so it's state-by-state, state, uh, every state, I believe, has a statute of limitations for contracts, like, like uh, what a student, private student loan or a federal student loan contract would be. Uh, in, in, in Florida, the statute of limitations is five years, meaning that the lender has five years from the breach or from the last payment to file a lawsuit to try to collect the money. After that five years the borrower would have a defense and the defense would be statute of limitations to the collection of that debt through filing a lawsuit. Um, Unfortunately, the federal student loans uh, do not have the same uh, statute of limitations. There is no statute of limitations for the federal student loans. And I've actually had people come into my office that have loans from the 70s and 80s that now with all the compound interest is a ridiculous amount and they're offsetting their Social Security and, and then they they call me because they can still take 15% of the Social Security. So the statute of limitations is a very powerful uh, defense for a borrower that hasn't made payments in many years. And unfortunately, we have a lot of borrowers out there that are delinquent and delinquent for, for many years. But if you hit that statute of limitations, uh, that's when you, you'll see these some of these collection agencies send out letters with, with extreme discounts as well saying, hey, you know, we're, we'll, we'll settle this for 10%, 20% because they know they can't file a lawsuit.
0: Right. Now, in Pennsylvania, that would be a four-year uh, statute of limitations from the date of the last payment. So uh, do, do you see, you know, people out there? Do you hear of people who have, you know, been coaxed into making a, a, a modest payment and then that, that resets the clock for them?
1: Unfortunately, all the time, and it, it seems to happen to the day before they come to meet with me. They say, "Well, I talked to this really nice person, and they all only wanted ten dollars." And you know, I, I realized that I haven't made payments in, in in many years, so I I wanted to try to work something out. And unfortunately, I the law, at least down here, it's it's pretty clear that if you make a voluntary payment, uh, it you got five more years to wait. And in in, in, uh, in the great state of Pennsylvania, you have uh, four more years to wait. And um, yeah, these debt collectors, like you said earlier, it's a multi-billion, multi-trillion dollar industry. So there's a lot of money that goes into the psychology of this and, and the collection efforts here. So um, that's why I always recommend to everybody that I speak with, you know, speak with somebody in the industry that understands how this works.
0: Um, now, uh, so the, the private, um, you know, student loans um, – one of the, you know, unfortunate aspects of that that makes it difficult to defend them is that oftentimes there are cosigners. signers Isn't that, you know, is it, you, do you see that a lot?
1: Absolutely. So, And that's that's a dead giveaway to whether there's private or, or federal student loans. Generally speaking, the private student loan is the only one with a cosigner, And usually there are cosigners signers because uh, these student loans are taken out most of the time, whenever the borrower is 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, ha- doesn't really have established credit, isn't working, at least working full-time and making income, so uh, they cannot qualify for the private student loan. What, what we're seeing many times down here, uh, unfortunately, is uh, the signer has passed away or the co signer is uncollectible because they're retired and their assets are, are protected, um, which that actually is a benefit in the negotiation. Um, but yeah, if you have a cosigner, you both are on the hook for a hundred hundred percent of what's owed. So um, you 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 can't just settle it. I mean, you can settle for one of the two, but they will go after the other person if it's not a global settlement between everyone.
0: Um, no, so uh, with the the federal loans, um, you know, we've talked about the NLS DS website. And I will put that up on the the show notes to tell people how to access that. You have to create what's called an FSA ID number, a PIN number. And that's really quick to do, by the way. This can all be done in five or ten minutes. Um, But that will show you, uh, you know, an account of every single federal loan you have, what the balance is, the payment, who to contact. Um, Now, you get somebody who has a federal loan, Chad, or has a federal loan problem, and maybe you know they now have their wages garnished, um, which only the federal uh, lenders can do, at least in our state. Um, uh, what do you suggest to them? What do you offer to them as a way to help them get out of their wage garnishment?
1: So, with with once the wage garnishment is all already in effect, you have limited options. So, you can plead with the government uh, an undue hardship, and you can and you can show that you know I, I have um, taken care of multiple people, I have a medical hardship, and, and they do have a process for that. That actually uh, we've been fairly successful when utilized, but you really you you have to prove the hardship. Uh, so that would be our, our first step. we would look to see if we can prove some sort of hardship. Uh, the second step, if, if we couldn't get the garnishment uh, taken away uh, with the hardship, we would look at uh, our bankruptcy options. So uh, would a Chapter 13 bankruptcy uh, help in this situation? If there's other debts especially, we, we, we look at doing the Chapter 13, benefits of the Chapter 13, and it immediately stops the garnishment, gets you into a monthly payment plan that you can afford based on you know the means test, and you know we'll go into that bankruptcy some other time, but uh, at least that gives you the immediate relief. Um finally, the, there's a rehabilitation process. Uh the rehabilitation process is, is good in that uh it can it can remove some late fees, it can uh fix your credit. The bad part about it is the garnishment stays in effect until you go through the rehabilitation process.
0: So And that's going to take roughly uh, 9 months, right?
1: Yes. Un- unfortunately, it's uh we we've gotten some released a little bit earlier but uh, on average it's 8 to 9 months
0: okay so let's say that you um get the a similar client who calls in hey he's got federal loans we we find that out and he he has gotten uh his tax refund intercepted what, or offset what do we what do you suggest for that client
1: so with that client we we actually have more options because uh, we don't have to necessarily go into the rehabilitation process even though that is an option uh unfortunately that tax refund has gone that's going to be applied to to the principal balance of the federal student loans uh, but we can look at if there's multiple loans we can look at consolidation bringing all bringing all of the separate federal loans into one consolidated loan uh, the good thing about that is it'll quickly get you out of default it'll limit the amount of installment Uh, installment accounts showing up on your credit report, you'll have one payment to one servicer and you can move forward. The bad part about that is you're gonna when you're gonna lump in with that consolidation loan all the interest and all the collection fees and everything that comes comes together with that which with a rehabilitation you can actually get rid of some of those fees. You'll never be able to knock down the principal but there are some collection fees that you might be able to get taken care of. Um, So those are really the options that we look at. Also Very rarely do I recommend this, but we will look at uh, refinancing with a private company like a SoFi uh, to see if there's if there's a lower interest rate. And that's probably less than two or three percent of the clients that I recommend that to with regards to federal student loans.
0: Um, You know, because then you're you're removing some of the the benefits that the federal lenders have uh, in terms of repayments, right? The income income driven payment payment plans
1: that's that's absolutely right so that that's why I, i'm i i'm probably even overestimating when i say two to three percent it's usually the only time i recommend that it is when i see somebody that, that's pretty well established in their career uh they can make significant payments and um uh, and they have a relatively high interest rate with their federal student loans and they and based on their credit they can access a lower interest rates. so you know sometimes we can lower from eight to nine percent to yeah you three know, to four percent, and sometimes that makes sense um, i I personally don't like it because I, I like having that safety net of if something happens, I can go into an income based repayment and I can pay zero dollars per month and not be in default
0: so okay we've we've talked a little bit about those federal borrowers who have been in default okay it's um and a clear way to know that you've been in default is you well, know you You get the the letter from the the, uh, the federal servicer saying, "Hey, you haven't made payments. we're garnishing your wages or you you've intercept we've intercepted your tax refund um, that they can only do that if you're in default, so you can get them out of default by either rehabilitating or by consolidating um, once they're out of default, which let me ask you this with consolidating Let's say somebody calls you today, uh, and they're a good consolidation candidate. How long will it take for them to get out of default?
1: And generally speaking, we, the application is going to process quickly, and, and you'll be out of default 30 days, 60 days.
0: Okay. And then you're in good standing. Um, once you're out of default, um, you, you know there are no more wage garnishments, no more tax intercepts um what do you recommend there uh you know for the you know person now out of, freshly out of default but they do have sizable federal debts um you know we've talked about the income based plans um you know how do you how do you help someone with a significant debt problem uh,
1: so there's Currently, and, and this is under fire right now with the, with the new Department of Education uh, secretary, but there's four different income-driven repayment plans. Uh, there's repay, uh, pay-as-you-earn, IBR, and ICR. Um, and then those are the income-driven repayment, and there's also the standard payment, there's the extended payment, there's the graduated, graduated, extended. There's multiple different programs.
0: Um but those are based on your balance
1: we're just right exactly those are based on balance balance interest and time the income driven is based on based on your income uh, and you're looking at ten percent of your discretionary income for pay as you earn and revised pay as you earn and um, in the income based repayment uh the i c r the income contingent it's twenty percent, but there's also another calculation that you can do with that. The only time I use income, income contingent repayment is when you're dealing with a parent plus loan. But for this discussion, let's let's assume that you know you have a bunch of um, direct loans or, or federal family education loan program that you consolidated, and and the three options are open to you: the revised pay as you earn, pay as you earn, and income based repayment. What we do is we run it through a calculator. We put in your income, your household size. Um, they do want you to take into your uh, spouse's. They want to take your spouse's income into consideration as well, especially if you file joint tax returns. There's a debate of whether you can get around that or whatnot. Um, I have seen it. I have seen it where if you file separate tax returns, they only look at your tax return because they that's what they base this income-based repayment program on. So I always run those numbers through the uh, calculator to figure out what the, what payment would be best. Um, And I also try to look at the individual's uh, uh, potential for advancement and what their career is, because you don't want to recapitalize interest too much and just get this tidal wave that's, that's taking over and growing to to an amount that you, that you're going to end up paying so much more in your career. Because I, I've had people come in here with literally a million dollars worth of student loan debt (laughs) um they're very smart uh but maybe not financially smart but uh they they there's ability to just rack up huge amounts of debt that grow year after year after year while you're in school so that's that's the first analysis we do we look at their income we look at their potential for growth and then we look at what program would be best for them
0: so um you know do you all of this is going to be on a case-by-case basis. And now, we didn't talk any about public service loan forgiveness. Do you get a lot of people uh, uh, inquiring about that?
1: I do I do get many people that come in for public service loan forgiveness. And unfortunately, some people think they're doing the right thing and they're they're in the public service loan forgiveness. And I have to give them the bad news that they don't have the correct loans to qualify for public service loan forgiveness. Uh, for example, uh, people come in with the uh, field loans, the family, uh, federal family education loans. Those need to be consolidated into direct loans before you go into the public service loan forgiveness uh, program. Um, it, it's very clear that if they're, if they're not direct loans, they don't qualify. And unfortunately, many of these people aren't told that. And sometimes, in my experience, they've been told, "Yeah, yeah, all you have to do is work for 10 years, make your income-based repayment, and whatever's left over will be forgiven." Unfortunately, that's just not the case.
0: Well, in fact, there—you know—cynics would probably say there's a, uh, no incentive on the on the part of the Department of Education to really inform people about public service loan forgiveness. Um, now, just to you know. When we talk about forgiveness, um, you know, that's like a magic word. Um, when is When are the, the, the student loans forgiven if you're in that program?
1: Yeah, I, I, I have people come into my office every day and they say, I'm, you know, I'm here for the student loan forgiveness program. Like what, what documents do I have to fill out and, and, and how long does it take? When it takes about, what, three, four months to, to get everything processed. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the case. The student loan forgiveness uh, comes at the end of you making your 120, 240, or 300 consecutive payments. Uh, that means 10 years, 20 years, or 25 years worth of payments based on what you can afford based on your income.
0: So now, the public service is for, t- is for 120 months, 120 payments, that's 10 years. And then which are the ones that's for right. 20 and 25?
1: So the, the pay pay as you earn is is for the 20 years, and the income base repayment is for the 25 years.
0: Um. Now, I I do a lot of IRS tax work, and um, uh, I actually do more of that in in addition to the bankruptcy work than than the student loan uh, you know consulting, and so. Uh, but a lot of people come to me and say, you know, we're we're seeing this huge tax. Uh, debt coming down the pike here because we're going to come up to the end of our student loan payment. Do you do you get any anybody questioning about that about the the, the cancellation of debt income that uh, is dealt with with, with the IRS? Oh,
1: so I I do get questions on that, and and my response to it are, are really twofold. First, um, Congress is going to have to do something if not. I mean, this is going to, I think, put the IRS over the edge because I think they're being uh, overworked, if you will, right now or or strained as, as much as you can right now, especially with the new tax code coming through, um, that if you add all these extra uncollectible collections onto their books, because people that, generally speaking, can't make payments on their student loans aren't necessarily going to be able to make payments to the IRS, or especially in a lump sum if you know, if it's been gaining interest for for years, and then I get a lump sum, a hundred thousand dollars, and I have to pay tax on that, or two hundred thousand dollars, whatever the forgiveness is, yeah. or even fifty thousand dollars, you're not going to have the money spinning around. Um,
0: go ahead. I'm sorry. Sorry. There, there specifically is. Let me say this for the listeners. There, there are some. There, there's one strategy because there, to get out of the out of this cancellation of debt um, problem, you know. The IRS does permit you to um, – you know, first, of you have to list it on your tax return, but then through a specific form, IRS Form 982, you can claim either a bankruptcy exemption, which unfortunately you wouldn't be able to do with the student loans, but you can also claim an insolvency if you're insolvent financially. In other words, your debts are in excess of your income then or your assets, then you can uh, claim an insolvent, uh, insolvency to at least – part or perhaps all of the student loan income, so to speak, that, that you've been charged against. So in any event, it is it is a big issue out there, And um, but one of the nice things is that with public service loan forgiveness uh, candidates, if they finish successfully, they make all of the 120-month uh, payments, then there is no cancellation of debt income for those folks. It's just with folks with IBR and pay-as-you-go. Um, so um, did you have... Um, any other problems that you typically see clients have with respect to the federal loans?
1: So with the federal loans, it, it's it's really just knowing uh, there's a lot of pro, there's a lot of program programs out there that people don't know about. That we've gone over a couple of them today. People unfortunately come into my office all the time with these parent plus loans, and it's usually the student that comes in to talk to me about the Parent PLUS loan. And I, I always have to tell them, you know, I'll, I'll give you whatever information you'd like, but it's not really your issue. It's only your issue because it's your parent that has the loan and the loan is 100% in the parent's name. The student actually has very little to do with the loan. Um, and there's less options for the Parent PLUS loan than there are for other loans. So it's really the the number one issue I see are people are just not educated on what type of loans they have and what options are available to them. And the servicers aren't necessarily leading them in the, in the best direction. They're really just trying to process paperwork and collect as much money as possible, which I, I think it was Navient's CEO said, you know, we're not in the business of helping people. We're in the business of making money for our shareholders. Yeah. Um, and, I, and, and I think too many people think that, okay, well, it's a government entity, so they're going to take care of me, and that's just not true.
0: Um, now, what about some of these for-profit schools that have had to close, like Corinthian and a lot of its affiliates? Have you seen a lot of those types of cases?
1: Uh, yes, I, I, I've gotten more phone calls than than honestly I can I can take on those type of cases, and and the frustration is, and my frustration. Are with the headlines that you see in newspapers. you know a uh, federal government it says they're going going to forgive loans uh, for people that went to Corinthian school and they put a headline out there but then there's no backfill in, in execution so they put an application process together but then nobody's there to evaluate the application so in my experience and and this is going back a couple years now the applications that we put together and we followed up on uh, nobody really received the forgiveness that they were promised by, by the different headlines. And, and now it seems like the uh, Trump administration is just rolling it back completely because in my estimation, it was a disaster because it was, it wasn't executed. It does make sense to have loan forgiveness, uh, for, for people that were taken advantage of. And the federal government wasn't doing its job as a watchdog on these federal loans. Um, but with the private student loans that doesn't exist. I, I always tell people that come in, it's like if if American Express or Bank of America or PNC gives you a credit card and you go buy make bad investments or, or, or pay for things that you didn't really like with that, they don't they don't come back and say, Well, you know, I'm I'm sorry you had a bad experience there, we're gonna forgive that debt. Uh, there is some personal responsibility that needs to be taken, especially in the private Private student loan lenders—they're—they're they're not offering any forgiveness for that. Um, but I think the federal government—they were in more of a watchdog capacity, and, and they let this happen. So I—I I, I can understand where loan forgiveness would um, would make sense. But you still could get loan forgiveness through the programs that we talked about.
0: Now, um, do you have anything? Before we make a segue over to private loans, uh, do you have anything uh, that you wanted to, uh, you know, talk about uh, for a minute or two about the federal loans? If not, we can move right over to privates.
1: Yeah, just the federal loans, just make sure you get your NSLDS report. Make sure you understand what your options are. And, and don't just take whatever your servicer tells you. Look into it, critically think. It could set you up for success or failure in the future.
0: Um, you know, one of the, you know, things I see over and over and over is that people just sort of sit in, you know, forbearance or deferment for a long time without actually being in one of the income-based programs. Do you see that a lot, too?
1: Yeah, that's but that's the easy thing for the servicer to do, and, it, and you know, most, most borrowers don't know any better. They qualify – the first thing people do whenever they lose their job, they call – they say, hey, can I get into forbearance? And that doesn't make any sense because your income is zero. So you might, might as well get credit for those payments of zero dollars a month. And, so
0: and just so people you, understand, after, uh, they can actually be in a, an income-based plan, income-driven plan, where they're paying zero and they're getting credit for it.
1: That's, that's correct. So it's the, it's the same as being in forbearance, except you're getting cre- credit for paying on time. And those payments go um, go towards the 122, 40 or 300. And uh, I'm I'm ashamed to admit it, but I, I was one of those people when I got out of law school. You know, I I was uh, not making as much money as, as I needed to pay my uh, law school student loans. So I put them in uh, I put them in forbearance. And then after studying a little bit, I said, well that that's dumb.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. I I should get on a I should get on one of these income-based repayment programs, and that that was many years ago. Thank goodness, but um, but yeah, it's it, it's it's a tough lesson to learn.
0: Um, it can be it can be the the price of uh, non decision can be very costly because of the interest that gets tacked onto these loans. So um, it can be tough. Um, all right, so let's make our segue back over to the private student loans and um, I wanted to talk about one little outrage that came up about two years ago, and I had never heard of this before, called um, automatic default. Do you remember hearing about this? I, I do. So, could you tell the listeners a little uh, bit about it? So uh, <laughs>
1: so i never um i I'm never surprised whenever these debt collection companies come up with different uh theories, and I guess maybe we should start maybe we should start back on um and talk about the private student loans and when the default goes into effect Go for um, it. yeah you know the, because it's very different than federal even though they use a lot of the same words they have very different definitions so for federal student loans if you if you miss one payment. You're delinquent, and you're delinquent until you miss 270 days worth of payments. The no, so
0: essentially nine months. Loans, yep, yep,
1: yep. Yeah, essentially, if you miss nine months worth of payments, then you're in default. Um, the private lenders, and and I think I think it was Wells Fargo uh, back. I think Wells Fargo was the first one where. Basically, as soon as they executed the note, they were in default based on the contract terms. And, and I don't I – don't, is that what you remember as well?
0: Well, that certainly doesn't surprise me about Wells Fargo, but here's what the automatic default was. Let's say that um, I have a private student loan and they got me – they asked my grandmother to co-sign.
1: Uh, and I graduated yeah, the bankruptcy
0: and death. I'm uh, yeah, exactly. So I've made all yep. of my private student loan payments on time. I'm in perfectly good standing, and I've been banking my payments for five years, let's say. Grandma has some financial problems, unbeknownst to me. I have no idea, but a lot of senior citizens have financial problems, as we know, and um, she has to file bankruptcy. Well, when you file bankruptcy, you have to list all of your debts, no matter if they're in good standing or not. You have to list them all. And so the private student loan company finds out about grandma's bankruptcy and they default my loans. So now I'm in default (laughs) because of grandma's bankruptcy. And also, so bankruptcy and death, if grandma has the audacity to die, then that also would trigger (laughs) my default. I mean, heaven help her that she decides to die. And so this yeah was, how, rude, how rude yeah I mean so this was actually something that that was exposed by none other than the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau and I didn't know about this I'd never heard of it before and it got it made the rounds because they did some press releases and it's completely outrageous and I haven't really seen much of it lately uh, I'm not sure if they're still doing that again because there is no defense there is no possible explanation. that that these banks could make for uh, somebody innocently coming into, you know, especially the borrower has been making their payments. Ridiculous. So, all right, we've talked about, go ahead. Yeah.
1: In in my opinion, it's all about having control. The the banks want to have control over when they can call a note, whatever they can do. So they know if, if they have you in default, then they're in control. And and I think that was just a, a way for them to be in control.
0: Now, at least up here, you know in Pennsylvania, what we see is a lot of private student loan lawsuits, okay um, now we we rarely see federal student loan lawsuits. I, I see some. I've had a couple usually with you know, healthcare uh, student loans in which doctors get sued. but but let's back to go back to the the private student loan lawsuits because the federal government really, because they have no statute of limitations, they've got these nice wage garnishment provisions that they can snap their fingers and garnish somebody's wages or take somebody's tax refund. The private student loan uh, lenders have got to sue, right? Do you see a lot of lawsuits in South Florida?
1: A ton of National Collegiate Trust lawsuits down here, for sure, and, and very I, I've represented a couple, uh, a couple bars on federal student loan lawsuits, but yeah, most, most
0: of them have been uh, private. Okay. So, um, you mentioned national collegiate trust. So let's say I'm a, I'm a college kid. I go out and I, I take out some private student loans and, uh, you know, I make some payments, but then, you know, I lose my job after college. I, you know, I've made a couple of years of payments. I, I lose my job a couple of years go by and I get some a deputy sheriff come up to my house with a lawsuit, big, thick pack, packet of papers. <laughs> and I open it up and there's this company called National Collegiate Trust. I've never heard of them. So can you tell me about National <laughs> Collegiate Trust?
1: So... Uh, w- w- what I what I've learned uh, after almost a decade of practicing law, not, nothing's original anymore. So basically, what national collegiate trust is is exactly what was happening with the uh, the mortgage crisis almost a decade ago. Um, it, it's something that Wall Street uses to make these defaulted loans uh, able to be sold and passed around uh, on the stock market. But it's it's tons of private student loans defaulted. That um that are that are sold in tranches, and they are the actual owner of your debt, even though that you you took out the debt with Discover or Sally May or whoever it may be. Now you're going to see National Collegiate Trust and a, and a serial number in there, and and that's where your loan is supposedly uh, held and owned. And the reason I say supposedly, they don't always have all the documentation. And it's not always the most organized process, uh, eerily similar um, to a decade ago in, in South Florida. Pittsburgh wasn't hit as bad as South Florida was as far as the real estate bubble bursting. Um, but that's what I see National Collegiate Trust resembling.
0: So going back to my example, let's say you know I'm a 28-year-old college grad. I defaulted on my private student loans. I got served with this National Collegiate Trust lawsuit. Should I fight it?
1: Well, you should absolutely get a lawyer um, to take a look at it. Because worst case scenario, the, the lawyer at least will be able to reach out to the, to the other side, uh, avoid default, maybe negotiate a settlement. Um, best case scenario, they, they may find some flaws in there, some defenses. We've talked about the statute of limitations defense earlier uh there are other other defenses uh one of the more popular ones is to challenge standing because you don't necessarily have or you don't have a direct relationship with national collegiate so different states have have different rules on um how you have to prove the chain of ownership and and sometimes um national collegiate cannot prove that so I, i I don't always recommend fighting if if it's a pretty clean file and it, it's a really big stack of papers that's very organized and and uh, somebody that's been through litigation can, can follow it. Uh, I, it. It might not make sense to spend a ton of money litigating where uh, you might be able to reach a settlement. So uh, the worst thing you could do is ignore it because then they're going to get a judgment and in Florida they can actually garnish your wages uh, up to 25% and garnish bank accounts. Uh, so you you don't want to have that issue to deal with as well. You'd rather have it maintained if you can and, and know what your options are.
0: So um I'm you know, I'm just wondering, you know, the the average attorney might not know much about this uh, you know, National Collegiate Trust issue. Um, you know, the when you talk to uh lawyers who are just you know, regular civil litigation attorneys. Do you do you ever talk about this kind of thing? Do do they ever inquire about uh, student loan um, lawsuit defenses?
1: Yeah, I, I get I get calls all the time from from attorneys that are getting into the student loan world. Um, it it it's not as simple of a um, uh, of litigation as some may think. It it is more complex uh, than just a regular contractual dispute, in my opinion. Just because you're dealing with uh, these trust and trust documents, and, and uh, at least in uh, South Florida or in the state of Florida, there's only two or three firms that deal with a collection of national collegiate trust. So they have a huge advantage on uh, most attorneys because they're dealing with hundreds, if not thousands, of these lawsuits, while uh, a, an, a small practice attorney might only have 100 cases total. So. Yeah. You'd want to, you you always want to ask and I I, I say this regardless of of uh, what the issue is. If you're interviewing a lawyer, you always want to ask, "Have you have you handled something similar to this in the past?" Um you don't want to necessarily be the guinea pig um because it could be an expensive mistake uh for for you.
0: Now, okay, so let me ask you this. Um you know, uh, some of our listeners may not know about um, the law known as the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, which is a law designed to prevent or punish um, abusive debt collection practices. Um, do you see many of these private student loan debt collectors engage in? Um, you know, abusive debt practices, debt, debt collection practices.
1: I, I do see abusive debt collection practices, and I, unfortunately, I see it across the board. Um, the FDCPA, I believe, is is a good law, and um, we have a, a most states have a um, a state law that's very similar. Ours is the Florida Collection uh, Consumer Collection Practices Act. Uh, in the problem with the fdcp and fccpa in my opinion is the teeth of it are, are getting taken out uh, it seems like almost daily in that they're finding ways around uh, the violation and it's difficult sometimes to prove uh the violations so the the, the case law we there's there's uh, many consumer groups out there that are fighting um but with the weakening of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau um, with some recent cases that come out. Uh, I haven't filed many FDCPA cases just because I, I don't see, um, it, it's too hard to prove and the judges, for whatever reason, haven't been as receptive
0: to them. Okay. So, you you know, we've talked a little bit about settlement. You had the Dramatic case that you talked about earlier, where you settled the two hundred thousand dollar uh, loan for twenty one thousand. Um, you know, do you, do you see many other private student loan borrowers that are able to successfully settle? Yeah, the
1: the majority of uh, the private student loan borrowers down here that are in default and that do have uh, financial issues. Uh, in my opinion, National Collegiate would rather have somebody paying them money or have, rather have a lump sum of money than have a piece of paper that says maybe one day I'll be able to collect money. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's even, even if they receive a judgment. Some people think once they receive a judgment, the negotiations are done as well. But once again, all the judgment is is a document that says you can legally enforce this debt. It's been through a legal process. So at that point, they're still willing to settle, especially if you, can, if you can show them, look, you're not going to be able to collect from me, but, but I have an aunt, I have a cousin, I have a brother, I have a sister, I have somebody that's willing to step up and, and offer you $10,000, $20,000, whatever it is. I've also seen National Collegiate um, offer payment plans. And so if there was a $50,000 balance, I've seen them reduce it to thirty thousand uh, at five hundred dollars a month over si- over sixty months at zero percent interest. I, I, I always tell my clients, whatever payment plan you get in, make sure that you can afford it first off, and make sure there's a beginning and an end to it.
0: Now, um, let's maybe close on uh, one big subject, and that you know you, you, we're both uh, bankruptcy attorneys, and um, you know we get people. Uh, calling up to say, you know, hey, I, I want to file bankruptcy and get rid of my student loans. Um, I'm sure you've heard that more than a couple of times before. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, it's probably a daily occurrence now. Um, every one of my ba- almost every one of my bankruptcies seems to have student loan issues as well.
0: Um, so. Uh, y- have you have you uh, had many? Have you done many cases involving uh, discharging student loans in bankruptcy court?
1: I have I have done a few cases. I I wouldn't I wouldn't call it many. I'm trying to pick and choose my battles. Um, it, the standard for uh, discharging a student loan in bankruptcy still is a very high standard. So usually it comes into into play whenever there's medical issues. And generally speaking. I prefer to do it just with the private student loans instead of the federal because the undue hardship standard for a federal student loan, the federal student loans have ways to handle if it really is an undue hardship in that you can qualify for a zero dollar a month payment. There's a, a total permanent disability discharge. There's other ways to deal with the federal student loans. So. For me to argue with the federal student loans, I have to argue to a judge. Well, judge, it's not fair for my client to have to fill out the uh, renewal every year, provide the financial information. Uh, It's not fair for them to have it on their credit report. I mean, there are some arguments there, but I think the stronger arguments are with the private student loans that just don't have these programs, and and they're just going to be out there after the bankruptcy, and the bankruptcy is designed to give somebody their fresh start. Yeah, I totally totally
0: agree. I, I, I totally agree with you with respect to the federal loans. It's going to be it's going to be tough to overcome the federal government in you know because they have the um medical discharge and and also uh 0 per, 0 per month uh repayment plans if you you know have limited income. So, um uh, you know what we sometimes see here in in terms of um you know if somebody has you know severe medical problems and they file a bankruptcy and with the private loans is that sometimes this will um you know be the catalyst to to get the private student loan lender to um negotiate uh, i'm not sure if you see that at all
1: yes and i i do see that and it and that's what i love about bankruptcy it does bring people to the table and you can you can usually speak with a decision maker, or somebody that somebody that actually understands what's going on, uh, in, instead of talking to a brick wall. sometimes which which sometimes it feels like.
0: Yeah, um, I totally agree. Well, uh, now Chad, do you or are, are you also licensed to practice up here in Pennsylvania?
1: The Western District of Pennsylvania, not not the state, so just the federal. So I can file bankruptcies up there.
0: I see. Very good. Um now if uh if folks want to contact you um I'll have it I'll have your uh contact information on the show notes but how do they get a hold of you otherwise?
1: The yeah, best way is to just go to the website vanhornlawgroup.com v a n V-A-N-H-O-R-N, h o r n lawgroup.com um you could also email me at chad@cvhlawgroup.com at or call me at 954 765 3166.
0: And um you you'll take their call in the in the 75 degree weather without without any problem at all.
1: <laughs> well, well, uh, while while on the beach having a pina colada. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, uh anything else you'd like to uh any parting thoughts, anything you'd like to close out with? Um
1: Thanks thanks for having me on Sean. There there is hope. Just make sure whoever you're getting guidance from actually knows what the heck they're talking about and of course go Steelers.
0: <laughs> Here you go, Chad. Uh <laughs> we are we are uh in the early part of the playoffs of NFL, so uh we do hope that the Steelers fare well and uh uh you know wish you a great uh remainder to your winter. Um I'm sure you'll suffer greatly uh uh, 75, 80 degrees. And uh, <laughs> think of us when you're when you're suffering down there. Uh, but thanks a lot for joining joining me. And um, uh, we'll put your information up on the website. And uh, thanks for thanks a lot for taking part today. All right, thanks, Sean. All right, take care, Chad. Bye bye.